This is a Federal News Network podcast. More illegal weapons, more viruses, the return of crowds, and some new buildings. Screening for federal facilities is about to get more complicated. For how this basic but critical function is changing, I spoke with the CEO of Patriot One, Peter Evans. Mr. Evans, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Very pleased to be here and joining you. You know, the Federal Protective Services and federal operations have always had this issue of screening and each generation of threat, whether it's bombings or weapons and so forth, now viruses. It makes getting into federal facilities for even other feds from another agency, let alone contractors and other people that might have business with an agency, it's really difficult to get in and it's hard for the people doing the screening. How do you see this whole process, this whole technology base changing? Tom, it's a great question. And, you know, as a little bit of context, we've seen society change significantly. It's certainly in the last five years, but along the last 10, 20, 30 years. You know, if we think back to 20, 30 years ago, when things like walk-through metal detectors were first invented, the world was different. We didn't walk around with smartphones. We didn't walk around with earbuds. We didn't walk around with the expectations of an experience that we might have had 20, 30 years ago. And so we're trying to solve as an industry, as a business, as a society, the rising threats that are going on, the social unrest that we're all experiencing these days, more of the mass shootings, more of the mass weapons and things like that. We're trying to solve that and today's expectations with technology that's 30 or 40 years old. And as a fun analogy, if we were trying to do this podcast today using technology from 40 years ago, we'd be using fax machines. Now just stop and think about how laughable that would be to do this podcast. You don't do that. So why are we addressing one of the most complex issues we have, protection of people, society, buildings, things like this, with 40-year-old technology? It doesn't make sense. The opportunity we have here is that if you look at what digital innovation does, it's changed the way that we conduct commerce. It's changed the way that we do retail. It's changed the way we do banking. And that same sort of technology can now be applied to this issue of physical security, patron screening, employee screening, and patron safety in these sorts of things. And so, you know, we're seeing this change in terms of these technologies. So you don't have this, this butting of the heads where more security creates a poor experience. And, you know, getting people into a building, you know, I've got to go through bags, I've got to go through pat downs, I've got to go through these screens, creating long, long lines. It's creating a kind of an invasion of personal privacy, which is a higher, you know, concern and issue today. And so there's been this kind of juxtaposition that's going on. Plus, it takes forever, too, and it's uh, the lines grow longer. But the difference between physical screening and, say, some other type of digital transaction is that you're just exchanging bits. But in the case of physical presence, you have to detect things and there's technologies that beam stuff and measure things. And so how do you get that down to something manageable? Exactly. Well, the technology exists today. And think of the same way that we do oil exploration. We do exploration for gold and silver and things like that. The same sort of radar technologies that can discern this is gold, this is silver, this is platinum in the ground. So I can mine that correctly. can be used for things like patron screening. So I can only look at and stop those individuals who indeed actually do have a weapon. Why are we stopping 100% of the people going into a building? Why are we inspecting everyone that's going into a building? Why are we causing them to separate their bags and their personal items and things like that, their smartphones and things, you know, uh, to have everyone have to go through that process and creating long lines and creating kind of a personal infringement when you're really only worried about those people who have something malicious, a gun. So with digital technology, the advantage is we can change the way we screen people. Older technologies, 100% of the people have to do best of t- uh, their personal items, their bags, their cell phones, and things like that. That creates long lines, creates a lot of personal infringement. 
with digital technology, you can discern this is a weapon, this is not a weapon. And so 99% of people who are not carrying a weapon are not a threat. They just streamlight it like they're walking down the sidewalk. It's only the one, two, three, four percent or whatever who actually have a gun, a knife, something that's prohibited out of concern that you need to separate. And so that creates a much faster, frictionless, positive experience for individuals going into an office building, a sports stadium, anything like that. We're speaking with Peter Evans. He's CEO of Patriot One. And so what does this look like? How can you accomplish that? Yeah, very simply. I mean, the digital technology is typically either side of a doorway. You have a couple of very simple pillars. They could be covert. They could be behind the walls, put behind the plaster. They could be built into the door frame. They could look like a couple of planters, right? Or they could be uh, decorated any way you want. If you want it to look like a weapon screening system, well, you can wrap it that way. But so whether you want it very covert and aesthetically pleasing for an office, or you just want to hide it behind the plaster and wall, very easy to do. All right. And so it's still beaming something, but it just does it at high speed and with greater intelligence, in other words. Yeah. Essentially what you're doing is think of it like radar technology that's setting signals out and it's reflecting certain properties back. A gun gives off a certain kind of a signature, the, the density of the metal, for example. You know, a knife blade gives off a certain kind of a signature versus, say, a cell phone. And the kind of signature, the, the, think of it like the reflective properties that come back from that. So it's very easy to discern this is a cell phone because of how it's reflecting radar techniques and technologies versus this is a gun, right? And even if you think of something like a 3D plastic gun, okay, for that to be fired a second time, it needs a hardened steel barrel. And that hardened steel barrel gives off a certain signature in response to the radar technology. And what about explosives or harmful substances that are not metallic? That's a great question, Tom. I mean, you can also key on the shrapnel with the bomb. But if you look at the unfortunate incidents, like something in Kabul, those bombers were intelligent enough to say, we're going to use all plastic shrapnel, all plastic explosives and things like that. So what you then do is you start designing your system, the AI system can start triggering on things like the triggering mechanism. Every bomb needs some sort of igniter, some sort of a triggering mechanism, batteries and an igniter. So you start triggering on that and looking for those kinds of things. And that way you're always staying one step ahead. The beauty of the AI systems is they're a learning system. So the more walkthroughs we go through, the more environments we go through, the more experience and exposure we have to the broad marketplace, the more the systems are constantly gathering data and learning and setting up the signatures so that they can then know this is a bomb, this is an igniter system, this is a weapon. And you are testing deployment of this with the Office of Inspector General of the GSA? Yes, we are. And we're very, very pleased with that relationship because not only is it a great opportunity for us to benefit you know, the federal government more broadly, but they're actually a nice innovative partner of ours. And so we like working with partners who help us innovate the technology and improve it. And they're giving us lots of good insights about what's the future. To test this, say guns or explosives or whatever, wouldn't you have to use your technology and then go ahead and screen the person second time in the traditional way to make sure that you got everything before you can just eliminate that second round of old technology. So the typical process that a customer of ours employs is individuals just walk through. And if an individual alerts, then they will go and take them over to the divesting table, ask them to remove their personal items and come through this system a second time to validate they're not trying to hide anything. That's very, very common for buildings, sports stadiums and places like that. Yeah, I was going to say it has to be predicated on a low percentage of people being stopped or otherwise you're right back where you started from. And doesn't everybody have AAA batteries on them or some kind of a device with wires that could be in their pocket together and look like an igniter, even though it's two separate items like earbuds and a battery? Yeah, it could. And so there's always going to be some degree of false positives. 
because there is no perfect system in the world that detects 100% of the weapons with 0% of the alerts. And so the difference though, is you ask yourself with a walkthrough metal detector, 100% of the people are being inspected, 100% of having to divest of personal items versus maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 7%, maybe it's 3%. And so 95% of the people have a fabulous experience and they wander right into their place of work and it's a much smaller percentage. This allows you to one, give a better experience, two, manage your security operations better the number of security staff that you actually need if you're not inspecting 100% of the people. And you can start to then think about optimizing your business with digital insights. And maybe people will walk around without so much junk on them. Or maybe they have more junk on them. Think about a sports stadium where you've got individuals who have to carry a bag in, a medical bag or a diaper bag because you're a mother or something like that. Well, now you don't have to go to a separate line and go through all the rigmarole of that. It's almost like you're being you know, segregated in society. Now everyone goes in and has the same experience. So you also get into a situation of you're not creating the haves and the have-nots. Everyone's treated very equally. Peter Evans, the CEO of Patriot One, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Tom, and thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you again in the future. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.